Well, this morning we are in Ezekiel. And I don't know if you all have done much study on Ezekiel, but one of the major prophets. Um, and when we say major prophets, what do we mean? That they were more important than the minor prophets? What were the major, what's the definition of a major prophet versus a minor prophet? Yeah, not where they are in the Bible, although we, we, we tend to group them together, but it's, it's the fact that they were, they were more, as, as my children say, Dad, you bloviate a lot, you talk a lot. Well, they were more prolific in their writing. God had them write more down. And so the major prophets just have bigger books, but they didn't necessarily have a bigger message, although Ezekiel's got a pretty big message. So let's take a look at... Uh, the, 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 to get things started, let's, let's look at what I'll call a, a self-assessment. When we look at ourselves, maybe we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror. And I self-assess in the mirror in the morning and I go, no, I don't want to look at that, you know. <laughs> let's move on from that. But a, a lot of times we'll do a self-assessment. And if we're not careful, we'll overstate our self-assessment. We tend to think better of ourselves and less of other people uh, when we're assessing. That tends to be a, a nature of us. Um, and so we've we got to be careful. We must have a self-assessment that is according to God's standard, not according to man's measure. And that's an awfully easy thing to do, and we see a lot of that going on today, that people are now having all this measurement of the world, and if we're not careful, we tend to go, how do we assess to that? How do we look to that? And, and we need to look and say, no, we're going to assess to what God says. And um, we see in today's message that Ezekiel is being a very faithful preacher to preach what God says. Back then, the Israelites, had, they, were, they were in exile, and they had all this social media going on around them. And it was the social media of the Babylons, the Babylonians. Uh, and, and in Babylon, they were hearing all this stuff. And they didn't have a very good um, assessment of the situation. And Ezekiel comes along to say, thus saith the Lord. So we're going we're gonna to look at that further. But I want to talk just a little bit, a couple examples of self-assessment, just to, and, and add some scripture to it as to how do we practically self-assess but keep ourselves in mind with what does Scripture say. So one of them I wrote down. How many of you have ever listened to uh, Garrison uh, Keillor's uh, uh, Lake Wobegon? You know, and how did he always end? How did he always end? He always said the same thing. He said, uh, I wrote it down. Well, that's the news from Lake Wobegon where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. You remember that? I always remember the children being above average. That's a self-assessment that's got very rose-colored glasses on, right? Because I guarantee you, not all the women are strong, not all the men are good-looking, nor are the children all above average. And so I, I said, okay, what verse, if I heard something like that, if I hear a self-assessment, either myself saying something personally or uh, corporately to the community or our nation, what scripture might apply? So I wrote down uh, Romans 12, 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Be sober-minded. Think correctly, right? That's a good verse. 
And I don't, I don't think I, did I write that? No, I don't think I've got that on your notes. So I just added these in as some self-assessments because I wanted to give you some verses to say, how should I think about self-assessment? What, what should I use that would be scriptural? I then chose the next one to say, I come from a little town called Carmel, Indiana. Carmel sits on the north side of Indianapolis, much like Edmond sits on the north side of, of Oklahoma City. Very similar type circumstances. Carmel was a little bitty community when I grew up in it. We moved to Carmel in the early 60s. And I grew up there, went to high school there. And I always tell everybody, Carmel, when I was there, had one stoplight. That was it. That's how small it was. Well, interestingly, Carmel has grown up to be a very large, prosperous community. They built it really around their sports. Uh, there's a strong history there. They became a sports powerhouse starting in the late 60s and have remained that way. And people started moving in because of that. And Carmel is now this huge, prosperous, and in fact, if you look up, over the last five, six, seven years, best communities to live in in the United States, Carmel will be one of the top five. So I'm going, I, so I went and read their website to see what they had to say about themselves. Because I grew up there, you gotta remember, I, I know what Carmel really is. And it says, uh, <laughs> Carmel, Indiana is a dynamic city where people and businesses can thrive. We have a gold medal park system, a strong sense of community, world-class cultural entertainment. We have a very dedicated professional workforce, Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, dynamic city, gold medal, strong sense, world class, dedicated. And I thought, careful, Carmel, because the verse that immediately came to mind was Proverbs 16, 18. Anybody remember what Proverbs 16, 18? Pride cometh before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. I thought... Therein lies how Carmel is presenting itself. Be very careful, Carmel, as to you know, what you have to say. And yet it's a great community. Now I laugh because Carmel is again known for something else. If you go looking at it, it's back to only one stoplight. They had 175 stoplights and they converted every stoplight to a, um, a roundabout, a big roundabout. That's some of them bigger than others. But every, so you no longer stop. There's no four-way stop signs. There's no stoplights. It's just roundabouts. And so you get used to roundabouts in Carmel because you'll go one, from one to the other. And it's amazing to see what they've done. So and people from all over the United States fly in from other towns to see if they can do that. So if you see a roundabout, it's probably got Carmel's name on it somehow involved. They, that became their, their moniker. All right. The third thing I looked at was I looked at the United States and said, how do we self-assess? Especially, how do we self-assess potentially as Christians? If we're not careful, I think one of the things that we might say to ourselves is, God will continue to bless the United States because, fill in the blank. Because we believe in God. That's right. People will say we, we're still a God-fearing country. Or they might end that because... Because people are still calling out his name for our country to fall to their knees. Because people are still calling out his name, right? Or we might say because maybe we talk about our past. We've done so much good. Look at all the good we've done in the U.S. to the world. And therefore God's going to bless. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful with those. Again, I'm trying to give you some scripture to help self-assess as we walk away from the class today to think about 
How should I think about myself? How should I think about my community? I wrote down Proverbs, or uh, Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If we want to correctly self-assess as a nation, is God our Lord? He may be our Lord personally. Is he our Lord as a nation? I don't think so. I think we've walked away from that. So we have to be careful on ourselves. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm just trying to give us some practical ways because this is what Ezekiel was facing with the people, people of Israel. So if you look at it, in fact, uh, Steve, why don't you read us uh, Ezekiel uh, 18 verses 1 to 4, if you would. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. So, you've probably read that proverb before. Um, and we're going to take a look at what that means today, what, what they were doing. But to give you a little, again, we're in Ezekiel 18. So we're about halfway through, not quite halfway through the book of Ezekiel, large book. But what's the background to Ezekiel? Well, Ezekiel was a major prophet that uh, lived, he was a contemporary of Jeremiah. So when Judah was taken into captivity the first time, he was, that is, Ezekiel, was taken with the captives. And so he was exiled along. Jeremiah stayed behind. If you read Jeremiah, he's behind in Jerusalem still with a few people that were left there, whereas Ezekiel is gone out, and he's now with the people in Babylon, or in, the, in Babylonian uh, uh, captivity. And yet Jerusalem has not been destroyed yet when his ministry starts. If you remember, they came and took them, but they didn't destroy the temple. And a few years later, the, the kings who had been put into place by uh, the Babylonian uh, kingdom had rebelled. And Zedekiah was told by Jer uh, Jeremiah that, hey, they're going to come. If you allow them to, to come in peaceful, peacefully, they're going to take you away into captivity but at least they won't destroy you or your family. Well, Zedekiah didn't believe Jeremiah. <coughs> and if you read, Zedekiah was captured, his family was captured, all his sons were killed in front of him, and then he was killed. So, it, it, you know, uh, a whole different story in Jeremiah. But that's going on at the same time that Ezekiel's going on. Ezekiel, he's off with all the captives. And it, the book of Ezekiel it starts about five years into that captivity. And we find that the front end, when you read the front end of this, he's, he's talking to all the captives, and they are captives. So at this point, they think, okay, we've been taken over, but Jerusalem still exists as it was. If you were in that situation, taken away from your home, taken away from the U.S., but the U.S. has not been destroyed, what might you think? You might think, you know, God still there we think God is all powerful he's done all this stuff in the past he has no trouble putting us back into place we're going to end up probably back in Jerusalem and be okay because it's all still there that's an easy thing to think about to think that hey 
bad as things are, I think God will turn this around because we're such a good people and we're, our, we're his people. And I mean, again, they're self-assessing incorrectly. And suddenly what happens? Everything is destroyed. Everything is destroyed. Jerusalem is burnt down. The walls are pulled down. And there's nothing left. Whatever was behind you, there's nothing left. Now what would you think as the people in exile? God, where are you? What's just happened? Do you still love us? Are you still there, God? Are we still your people? We're really, can you see that? That's the background of what Ezekiel steps into. He is the only prophet, as far as we know, that his ministry is to people away from Jerusalem. In other words, his ministry is away from Israel. It's in captivity. And so he takes on this ministry. God calls him, and he's into the ministry of telling the people. And there's really, I wrote down three themes in the book of Ezekiel. Again, his background. The, the one theme is the, the sovereignty and the glory of God. Ezekiel talks about that. Then he talks about the utter sinfulness of humans and the inescapability of judgment. You get the whole middle part. In fact, we're in that middle part when we're looking at chapter 18 today. The, uh, the whole sinfulness of, of uh, humans and the inescapability of judgment. And he gives all of that, and then, Israel, or then Jerusalem is destroyed. Temple's destroyed. Walls are pulled down. And he pivots and he suddenly becomes a prophet that starts talking about the return of the king and the restoration of the people. And we get in Ezekiel, the wheel within a wheel. Remember the, the story of the wheel and the dry bones? That's all part of Ezekiel. That's all end-time prophecy that he's talking about. And he's really giving that message to us also that there's going to be a restoration. And so he goes from telling everybody, hey, the truth is, again, we're talking about a preacher speaking truth in the middle of chaos, in the middle of Babylon saying, you need to do something else. You need to be secular. You need to walk away from your God, right? And he says, no, let me tell you, God is not happy with you. And there is going to be judgment. But ultimately, I want you to know that God has said he still has and still wants a close personal relationship with each one of you. There is hope. There will be restoration. That message is so contemporary to us today. We are almost living like exiles in the U.S. today as Christians. We're starting to feel that. We're starting to sense that. It's going to get worse, I, I assume. I just, so I, that's why I think this message is so important to us today, is to think about what were they like. So we're in Ezekiel. Um, we look at those first four. God spoke. So on your notes, uh, God spoke through Ezekiel and there's at least a dozen times in the book of Ezekiel it says the word of the Lord. It says the same thing in Jeremiah often. But again, as I say, the word of the Lord tells us that he was speaking directly to Ezekiel and he was God's mouthpiece. They were hearing from all the culture around them, all the social um, going on around them that Here's what, here's what they should be doing. Here's how they should be thinking. Here's what should be going on. And God says, no, that's incorrect. The world does not have it right. And I'm going to give you truth. And truth, what's the definition of truth? Truth is what God says. Back then, what God says was through a prophet. Today, 
What God says, how do we know what God says? How do we know what truth is? In the Bible. Bible. Now, we have prophets, preachers, teachers who say, thus saith the Lord and preach out of the word. But we don't need the direct revelation as much as they did because we have all the scripture. Does that make sense? But it's still today when we are in doubt, we must say, thus saith the Lord and go say, Lord, what do you say? What is truth to you? so that I can live my life accordingly. Not what does social media say to me, but what does God say to me? That's exactly where they were. Um, A popular well-known saying back then, the fathers eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. Interestingly enough, and and I give it to you in there, Jeremiah 31, 29 says exactly the same thing. Where was Jeremiah located? What did I tell you? Back at Jerusalem. So everybody back there knew the same proverb. It was obviously a proverb that had been coined by the people, but was well known. It was not just to the captives here. Does that make sense? So it's a pretty broadly well known. What did it mean? How were they using it? Anybody know? Is this a relationship between one generation and another? It is. And the second generation basically suffering because of what the generation ahead of them did? Not only are they saying they're suffering because of what the generation did ahead of them, but they're saying we're blaming our parents. We are in our current circumstances because of our parents' sin. They were self-assessing, and what were they saying? Not our fault. And God comes along through Ezekiel and says, I know that I told you that I will have, in in Exodus it says that the sins of the fathers shall be through the third or fourth generation. They, They knew that. That was told to them. But they'd forgotten that in Deuteronomy it also said... That and, I, and I, I've got that quoted somewhere. I'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. But in Deuteronomy where it says that no, the, the sins of the father will be the fathers and the sins of the sons will be the son. So both of those are quoted and they're confused on how to apply it. They're self-assessing saying not our fault. We're here because of our parents. And therefore they're not correctly looking at their own situation. They were in the midst of this other culture And they were getting absorbed into the culture, and God's going, you're thinking wrong. I know that your parents' sin caused a problem. There are no question there are consequences. A father father and mother can end up in jail, and it can affect generations after them, right? God God certainly shows that to be the case. But God's saying, that's not how you guys are applying it. You're improperly not realizing that I look to you individually. And it's your individual sin that I'm concerned about. Not your past sin of your moms and dads, but your sin. And that's what Ezekiel comes along in this, in this uh, chapter to talk about. So, um, God disagrees with their assessment. I think that's your next fill in the blank. And I give us a quote there with Revelation 2, verses 3 and 4. I know you are enduring patiently. This is where Jesus is talking to the churches. And he tells the church, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. What does that sound like? You're doing A good job. I know you're bearing patiently. And you have not grown weary. I'm good so far, but the next verse starts with the word but. But. That's always a... Do you ever have your parents do that to you? (laughs) Or did you ever do that to your parents? But mom, but dad. You know, there's always a but. Some reason, right? And Jesus goes, but... um, 
I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's a self-assessment. That church has looked at themselves and saying, look how good we are. Look how we're bearing up. Look how we're doing all this stuff. Kind of sounds like the, what we want to say about our own country. But Jesus says, I have this against you. So, again, he's going to hold us individually accountable. And he says, in, uh, as Steve read, you will no longer quote this proverb, um, everything good belongs to me, that it belongs to God. The soul who sins is the one who will die. God very clearly says to Ezekiel, I want to clarify what's going on here. I want you to know that you're going to be held responsible for your own sin. And your sin, by the way, will have a collective nature, obviously, to the community. But if you do good individually, then you're doing the right thing. When you're thinking about living in exile, living with all this garbage coming around you as they were with Babylonian influence, he says, think about yourself first, and I want you to think about how you should be living. Because if you live it correctly, as I've commanded you to do so, the community will be better for it. If you don't, the community will suffer. It's an amen or, or no me to myself to say, when I'm in challenging times like this, I don't need to look outside and go, oh, if only. I only need to say if only I. If only I would be this way, if only I would follow the Lord, then I will make a difference. It seems like we can't make a difference when it's just one of us. But God doesn't agree with that. Don't self-assess that way. God says, you make a difference on your own, and it will group together with others, and it will make a difference. I think that's a great message for us to hear today, because we want to look outside of ourselves. So God disagrees. Uh, the, let's see, um, my next note here. I, I, again, commenting that in the, today's text, the Israelites are disavowing any culpability for their situation. They are claiming that God is unjust in his dealings with them. And God says, we, we don't read it in this piece of it. It's later in, in 18. We're not going to read all of 18. But he said, no, 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 no. He said, let me tell you, it is not about you. It is about me. I am just. You are unjust. You're thinking incorrectly. So he goes on to say then, what does God expect of me and what should I do? And um, Steve, read us verses 5 to 9. Steve had to leave. Can I read for you? Oh, yes. Sorry, I didn't see he wasn't there. He slipped away just like when I fell on the ice. Boom. <laughs> he was gone. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines nor look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relationships with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns to what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Amen. Okay, so in the rest of Ezekiel, there are three case studies done by Ezekiel. God gives Ezekiel three case studies. One of them is, I'm going to tell you what a righteous man is, a hypothetical person what it looks like. That's the one we're going to look at today. Then he goes on to say, 
Let me give you another case study of a man who was evil. And I'm going to punish him for that evil. I'm going to hold him responsible for his own sin. And then he gives a third case study that says that evil man has a son. And that son does what is right, even though he had an evil father. I'm not going to punish the son for his dad's sins. I'm only going to punish that son for what he does. So his righteousness will hold him in good stead with me. He gives three very good, clear examples here. I'm only going to look at the general one to say, what should it look like? What does God expect a just and righteous man to look like? A hypothetical man doing what is just and right in, in your next blanks there. And I, I gave you a couple of uh, uh, verses here. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Who is that? Jesus. Who's he talking about? I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Who's the righteous branch? Jesus. Jesus. Absolutely. So that's, again, that hope that they're giving. He's saying uh, that, that, that I'm, I'm interested in righteousness. What is God's righteousness looks like? What does just and right look like to the Lord? Again, I'm giving us some background to say, how do we, how do we take a look at that? If you were going to say, God, what is just and right in your opinion, what might you quote? I'm always going to go back to scripture because it's the way to get away from a wrong self-assessment. We need to look at what does God say is a correct assessment? How might you look at that from a scripture viewpoint? How about when the Pharisee came up to Jesus and said, tell us, teacher, what is the greatest command? He's trying to trap him, but he's really asking the question that we'd like to know, too, is, God, what do you consider to be just and right? And how did Jesus answer him? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, number one. That's the greatest commandment. And number two, equally as important, love your neighbors yourself. You want to know what justice and righteousness look like? Love your Lord your God and love your neighbor. Everything else hinges on those two things. I quote that in the Matthew 22 verse. So what's it look like to live out the great commandment? So we look at verse 6a uh, that was read in Ezekiel. Proper love for God begins by, yeah, but worshiping no other God, loving no other God. Yes, worshiping or loving no other God. So that's a clear, I mean, that's easy to see, and that, but that's exactly what's being stated here in this verse. Do you see that? He's giving a case study, but we have some more knowledge that they didn't have. We have Jesus telling us already, let me tell you what is just and right. Let's just see, though, if what Ezekiel says in this case study holds up to what Jesus quoted in Matthew. So first off, proper love for God begins by worshiping no other God. Exodus 23, 4. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Talking about the Ten Commandments. Two and three there. So, um, the, the important thing here again to realize is we're trying to ascertain, Lord, when I hear something, social media, or anything else even being preached from the pulpit, how do I hold that up against what is Truth. Everybody says they have truth. But from a Christian viewpoint, we say, no, truth is, what do we say? What God says. Truth is what God, not what the world says, but what God says. By the way, faith is believing what God says. 
That's what our faith does for us, is we believe what God tells us. And obedience is doing what God says. So those are the three things, how they tie together. But we're talking about the truth today. So in the truth, um, in, verse, in the next piece of verse 6, at the end of verse 6, the just man is to stay morally pure. Purity is what God expects. And does that fit into love your Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself? Moral purity, absolutely, fits right into that. Um, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall, you shall not commit adultery. But I quote Philippians 4, 8 also, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lo lovely. And he goes on and says, think about these things. This is what you should do. Uh, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Purity is keeping God's commandments, knowing what God has commanded. Um, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, you were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being constantly corrupted by its evil desires. Amen, right? And to be made new in the renewing of your mind and to put on your new self, which was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You want to know? God has made us new. And we have that purity and we have that righteousness and that justness in us now because we have what living in us? The, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, God in us. So uh, going on then, the, in verse 7, the righteous man exists godly love towards others. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's stated very clearly here, right? And I quote James 2 for you. How about verse 8? The just man has a, this is really important. This is as important a piece as any. The just man has a clear vision of God's ways. Proverbs 31, 9. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Judge fairly. 1 Peter 4, 16 and 17. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear your name. You have a clear vision of my suffering. If it's done in purity and righteousness, I'm doing the right thing, the just thing in God's opinion, and I'm suffering. What does Peter tell us? Praise the Lord. I'll praise the Lord, right? Well, that's a clear vision. That's what this man sees is a clear vision. That's what we're called to do. Luke 6, 31 to 36, do not, uh, don't do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Again, you can go on and read the rest of that, but it's this reverse thinking. You're thinking wrong. Don't hate your enemies. Love your enemies. Man, it just, God, uh, Jesus put so many things on his ear. He always said, barely, barely, I say to you, the world says this, but I tell you the truth is, this. That's why we have to go back to Scripture and say, what is truth? Truth is what God says. Does this make sense to you? Does this, this is what we're trying to do here with this case study. The righteous, uh, verse 9 there, the righteous and just man does not follow the sinful ways of others. Um, we know that, that ultimately, Revelation 21, 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We don't need to worry about judging as God judges. God will take care of it in the end. We have a clear vision of what that is. We know how to handle all this garbage coming at us from around us. So God's call. God's call is always a call to repentance. It was the same call of Jonah and God to Nineveh last week. Do you remember that? God's, it's always a call to repentance. 
in Nineveh's case, they repented. Now, they later were judged because they went back to their old ways, but they repented. God always has a call to repentance. The, wor the world wants us to have a new start. God wants us to have a new heart. Big deal. The world is sorry they got caught. The, the, the uh, person who is just and right is remorseful that they sinned against the Lord, that they turned from the Lord. Well, we're out of time. Are we running out of time today? Oh, God, we are out of time. So I've given you, God wants, as a hope, God wants a close personal relationship with everyone else. That's the hope. And look at the applications. Our hope is in the Lord. We do not need to fear the world. God will never leave you. Go back and read the verses that I've given you under those. Go back and see that we do not have to be anxious about anything. That we can have joy in the world. That even though we feel like we're in exile or going into exile, we can have a correct self-assessment. Thank goodness that there are people that we are around in this church who preach the word faithfully. But we need to also be doers of the word. We need to get in and do it ourselves and, and dig in and say, God, what do you say? Because there's so much garbage coming at us. Amen? Amen. Or oh, amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful that you give us the word. We are thankful that we have the truth that we need to live just and righteous lives. Thank you for the case study in Ezekiel that helps us to see that clearly. I pray that each one of us would go in and dig a little deeper into this Ezekiel 18 and see how it's so applicable to us today that we just need to realize on a self-assessment that truth comes from you, that we are truly all sinners in need of a Savior, that we have this great salvation, that God has given us this wonderful promise of heaven and what we're going to be doing, that we can endure anything here because we have a clear vision of what our ministry is about. Lord, we'll give you all the praise and the glory for that which you do in us and through us and all God's people said. Amen. 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 Have a great week. Thanks to everybody online.